0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. There she goes. thousand feet a minute. Twice a day, they launch a hydrogen weather balloon in Grand Junction. Denver's balloon is grounded because of the helium shortage. How this low-tech launch helps us understand global weather and climate. Where is this thing going to end up?
1: Could end up well on the mesa, could end up in rifle. We had one end up in a golf course in Colorado Springs.
0: Then, we remember Holocaust survivor Eric Kahn, whose parents were sent to Auschwitz. He was taken in by a French Christian family.
2: I had a garden level window I could look out of, and I was able to see the Nazis' boots marching up and down outside.
0: Kahn died earlier this month. We'll listen back to our 2017 conversation.
3: Thank you for supporting CPR. Every day, your membership is put to good work serving communities across our state. You ensure that news and music remain freely available to Coloradans everywhere. Your generosity helps make it all possible.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. As weather and climate get more erratic, powerful computers help us understand the changes But some of the data they crunch come from something pretty low-tech, balloons, with what's called a radio sonde attached. Here's the rub. There's a helium shortage, which means the National Weather Service in Denver hasn't launched its balloon for months. So we traveled to Grand Junction, where there's a hydrogen balloon release, part of a twice-daily global event. The balloons go up worldwide at the same time. Oh, it's an orchestration, a choreography. Yeah, midnight
1: and noon, Greenwich Mean Time.
0: We've come to the Grand Junction Airport to meet Dan Cuevas of the National Weather Service, who will inflate the balloon, attach a monitor to it called a radiosonde, and do the launch. Let me grab a balloon. We're going out these doors. Wait, you're grabbing a balloon because they are disposable? They're, they, yes. you don't... It's, oh. it's all disposable. Where is this thing
1: going to end up? It could end up well on the Mesa, it could end up in rifle. We had one end up in a golf course in Colorado Springs. And then do people retrieve them for you or? The old instruments that we had, had plastic postage paid pre-addressed envelopes. So if a person would find one, they would put it in the envelope, drop it in the mailbox. It would go back to Kansas City. If they could recondition it to the point where it would operate, they would launch fix it, it up, in. yeah, and send it back out into the field. We don't do that with the new radiosons;
0: they're just disposable. And they might be anywhere. And if I found one, I could keep it. Yeah. All right. I'm the gonna har- my They're own.
1: harmless. There's nothing dangerous about them.
0: Now you are filling this balloon up, yes. not with helium, right? Hydrogen. Hydrogen. Flammable. Highly. You gotta be careful. Correct. I hate to say this, Dan, that weather balloon looks like a giant condom.
1: I've never heard it called that, but okay.
0: You have attached the balloon as you might a birthday balloon.
1: Yeah, we attach it to the nozzle here, and then we'll turn the hydrogen
0: flow on. We have stowed our cell phones away so that there's not any spark hazard. And, oh, here, the Hydrogen Inflation Safety System.
1: Yeah, it was HISS for short. HISS. <laughs> so we reset the software and we put it in the standby. That turns on two
0: exhaust fans up in the corners. Oh, that's going to exhaust any excess gas. Yeah. Okay.
1: Here we have our parachute. And every balloon that goes up has to have a parachute on it so that when the balloon bursts, the instrument will fall gently to the ground. Gently
0: to the ground.
1: Have there ever been collisions with things? Not that I have heard. Okay. But we're told that we have to have a parachute with every flight, so.
0: And that's how the balloon meets its demise? It bursts? It'll burst. It'll be finished
1: inflating just a little bit bigger than what it is now but as it goes up, because it's encountering less pressure, less air pressure, it's going to expand. And before it bursts, I'm told it will be as big as this room.
0: Oh my goodness, it's the size of a very large garage before it bursts.
1: Correct. And it gets so big and stretches so far, and it's so cold, that it gets, the material gets brittle, eventually to the point where it just can't stretch anymore and then it'll burst.
0: Cold Because it's going that high up, how high will this balloon go? It'll go 20 miles. 20 miles up? Correct.
1: It'll go about two hours. It goes up about 1,000 feet a minute. And it'll it'll go up as long as 120 minutes before it bursts. Do you ever wish you were up with it, Dan? It's very cold up there. (laughs) 60 degrees below zero. What
0: is this measuring, exactly? (laughs)
1: The sonde is measuring temperature, humidity, or the moisture content of the air, pressure,
0: and wind speed, wind direction. How much of the forecasts that I rely on every day is based on the information that this balloon and radio sonde are helping gather?
1: Across the continental United States, there's probably maybe 80 to 100 stations that put up balloons twice a day. The data that we get from the balloons all ends up, I believe, in Silver Spring, Maryland, ah. where some of the fastest computers in the world are
0: located. And that centralize and synthesize all this. Correct.
1: That data is the backbone to the beginning of the forecasting process.
0: Ooh, did it just finish? Yeah. It's a bit Willy Wonka-looking, isn't it, Dan?
1: Willy Wonka, yeah, yeah. We feel the balloon to lift between one and a half and two pounds. Well, the Radiosonde is not terribly heavy. No, the Radiosonde basically is styrofoam, a few circuit boards, and wiring.
0: How many of these do you think you've done, these launches? Two-minute count?
1: I'd have to re- I'd have to stop and think about it.
0: Yeah, that's, that's some high math. Okay, a every, lot.
1: Every time I come to work, I do one.
0: And you've been here since 90-something, right? 89. 89. And the balloon is too big to bring out of the door that we walked in. So you've got to use this garage door.
1: I'm gonna give the tower a call to get clearance to put the balloon in the air. Yeah, tower, weather service would like to launch a balloon. righty, thank you.
0: Bye. Does the tower ever tell you you can't launch?
1: They've always, for the most part, it's almost like a reflex. They tell you, sure, go ahead. I was having trouble with one afternoon flight. I had a bad radio sound. I had to turn it in and get another one, and it was taking up some time. So before I got to the point where I was ready to call the tower, they called me and said, don't release the balloon. Barack Obama, President Barack Obama, was doing campaigning for his second term. He was in town, and Air Force One was ready to take off. And they didn't want to have to shoot down any weather balloons. Uh, (laughs) You
0: deferred to the president in that case. Correct.
1: And when the coast was clear, the tower called me back and said, OK, you can release it. And I was still within the acceptable window. So it got off. I got the data and it was all good.
0: And it smells like the rubber of a balloon, you know?
1: Yeah, it really isn't much different than that. OK. We'll just carry it out and release it. There she goes. thousand feet a minute.
0: In no time, the weather balloon is a mere speck in the sky. I've tweeted a video of the launch at CPR Warner. Dan Cuevas and I retreat to his office where there's a computer taking in all the real-time data. And I have one more question before we part ways. Dan, were you always a weather nerd? I grew up fearing a
1: lot of the weather that occurred in eastern Kansas. Fearing it? afraid of thunderstorms and, and lightning. Uh, we had a weeping willow in our backyard that would wave back and forth with not much wind blowing. And my parents tell me that I would run inside afraid that a tornado was coming.
0: I mean, that was a real possibility.
1: It was most of the time. It wasn't the case, uh-huh. but I, in being afraid of it, I, I wanted to learn more about it. So I started, you know checking out books from the library and buying books at
0: bookstores, and it became an interest. A fear became an interest. A fear became a profession. Correct. Thank you so much for letting us watch this. Sure, yeah. Weather balloon launch expert Dan Cuevas. His official title with the National Weather Service in Grand Junction is hydrometeorological technician. Now someone who uses the data it collects... Time for our regular conversation about weather and climate and how they affect our lives with Mike Nelson. He's chief meteorologist at Denver 7, and we sat at his news desk. Mike, nice to see you again. Always a pleasure. The contrast between supercomputers that crunch data and the balloons that gather the data is so striking to me. Are there other tools that would surprise us with
3: their simplicity? Well, we still use thermometers and uh, hygrometers to measure humidity, a wind vane. I mean, all of the basic stuff, a barometer. Every bit of that is very important to know the current weather conditions, stick that into the supercomputers, do the number crunching, and come up with the future weather conditions.
0: You know, one of the lowest tech weather measurements that stands out to me are the hail pads.
3: Yes, it really literally is a styrofoam pad covered with aluminum foil. It's about a foot by a foot in diameter. You put it outside and we can tell how big the hail is by how big the dent in the hail pad.
0: Something you could make at home, frankly, if you had maybe art and kitchen supplies. Well, is it the case perhaps that you,
3: as a television meteorologist, have launched your own weather balloon? Is that what we're looking at here on the news desk? What we have here is my school talk kit. And over the years, I've done this for 40 years, I have different radio sands that go all the way back. Look at the size of this one. It's about the size of a shoebox. right? I like to start with this one. This is back the kind that we used in the 1970s. But when you stand up in front of all the kids, you can't hold that little tiny radio sound up. They can barely see it. So I start with this one and then move on through all the different iterations, the generations of radiosondes.
0: Radiosondes, again, the device attached to the balloon that's gathering the data. But in a way, like the computer or our phones, they have gotten smaller over the decades. Yeah,
3: look at the difference here. The, the one that you witnessed being launched is maybe one-tenth the size and the weight of the ones we used decades ago.
0: And you've got some climate research stations that still collect and store
3: air samples in bottles. Absolutely, and they go up to Boulder, to NOAA up there, and they analyze these bottles that come from not only across the United States, but all over the world. And they're bottles filled with air that measure CO2.
0: Even though we are landlocked, We know that weather and climate are heavily influenced by what happens in the oceans. I am hearing about a triple dip La Nina.
3: A La Nina winter features a jet stream over North America that comes from the Pacific Northwest, down across Colorado, and then out across the southeastern United States, a northwesterly jet stream. Not all the time, but most of the time. We don't normally see three in a row. It's happened before, but it's rare.
0: So that's the triple dip, is that we might see three La Niñas in a row. And why
3: is that remarkable in our daily lives? If we have a predominant northwest jet stream flow, that means the storms come in from the Pacific Northwest and cut across Colorado. That favors Steamboat Summit County at the expense of, say, Crested Butte and Telluride with heavier snows. Not great news for the Southwest Mountains. Not great news for the Colorado River. That feeds into eventually Lake Powell and Lake Mead. We'd rather have a big old El Nino winter because that tends to bring in heavier precipitation.
0: What does it spell for skiing? Not not to be, you know, uh, trifling.
3: Generally, it does mean that steamboat gets good snow. Steamboat often has good snow. Uh, The park range up there gets one of the heaviest amounts of snow all the time. Uh, It's good for Summit County. It's not so good if you're thinking of going to a southwestern resort. Now, that can shift a little bit. I mean, weather versus long-term effects. We might get a couple of good storms, hopefully, that would favor the southwest mountains. But that's generally not in the cards in a La Nina winter.
0: Scientists in Colorado recently said they found a new method that might help reverse climate change injecting tiny reflective particles into the atmosphere to help cool the planet by reflecting sunlight back into space. Sounds a bit like the plot of a Bond villain, or maybe something out of Snowpiercer. Have you heard about this? And I wonder if it's not the first time you've heard about human interventions to change not just weather, but possibly climate.
3: When I was in college at the University of Wisconsin in the mid-1970s, we actually had lectures about this. Aerosols, the tiny particles in the atmosphere, reflect sunlight. So if you reflect it, that would have a cooling effect. It's what volcanoes do. We get like Mount Pinatubo. Uh, it put a lot of aerosols into the atmosphere. And we actually had a global cooling for about two years. So there is reason that this would work. Unfortunately, This experiment that we're currently doing with adding carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is not faring too well. So it kind of goes back to the old margarine ad. It's not nice to fool Mother Nature. So although it has some merit, doing a global chemistry experiment is also uh, something that's a little scary, I'd say. You tweeted
0: recently that we have known the effect of CO2 on global temperature for a long time. How long have we known about that Phenomenon.
3: Almost 200 years. In 1825, Joseph Fourier, any mathematician would know of the Fourier series, realized that the Earth was far too distant from the Sun to be as warm as it is, and it was the atmosphere that was trapping the heat, warming the planet. By 1863, Abraham Lincoln was president. John Tyndall, an Irish chemist, identified carbon dioxide as the gas that was trapping the heat. And in the 1890s, Svante Arrhenius, a Swedish researcher, postulated that a doubling of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere would warm the planet by several degrees, with the greatest warming at the polar regions.
0: Remind me of the year?
3: 1893. My goodness. I was just a boy.
0: Uh Aha. Okay. You know, you've got gray hair, but, but let's be kind to ourselves. Do you ever get accused of being too preachy in your weather forecasts?
3: It does happen when I talk about climate change. And I don't talk about climate change in every single weather report, but I probably do it once or twice a week. And I don't spend a lot of time at it because I only have a a two-and-a-half-minute weather report, but I might spend a minute explaining, you know, it's been a hot summer. The reason that it's been a hot summer is because our world is getting warmer. And as we add carbon dioxide to the atmosphere, that's trapping heat that would otherwise escape into space. Doesn't mean you won't have some cool days, but the trend is we're going to have warmer and warmer weather conditions. And so when I do that, I sometimes get some pushback from people saying, now you're politicizing the weather report. It's not politics. It's just science. Add heat, it gets warmer. But over the course of time, Ryan, if I get one complaint, I probably get five to ten people saying, thank you for talking about this. You're the only weathercaster that does
0: you know what stands out in what you just said is that a meteorologist could go on TV and simply note a record stretch of hot days and then and you're concerned with and then what
3: making the connection to climate change yes we've had the third hottest summer on record going back to the 1870s here in Denver That is related to the fact the world is getting warmer, because the other two hottest ones have been in the last decade.
0: Mike, thank you so much for being with us. Always a pleasure, Ryan.
3: Denver 7 chief
0: meteorologist Mike Nelson joins us regularly to talk about Colorado climate and weather. Robots as companions, even caregivers? Yep, they're already in care settings. Here is Rebecca Romberg from CPR's Audio Innovations team.
4: Say hello to an unusual guest who recently appeared at Aspen Ideas Health.
5: Hello, I am Pepper. It's great to see you. I hope you are having a wonderful day.
4: That voice belongs to Pepper, a humanoid robot. Pepper can recognize your facial expressions and basic emotions. Pepper can tell you a joke.
5: A robot, a Roomba, and a Norwegian walk into a bar. Or
4: even help you remember a special time in your life.
5: Would you like to relive some of your memories from the past?
4: Helping people with their memories is an important part of Pepper's job. Computer science professor Arshia Khan programs Pepper and other humanoid robots to work in nursing homes. Khan says that her robots could help address a growing problem in healthcare. Here's Khan
6: Every three seconds, somebody is diagnosed with dementia. It's really scary. So, in 2019, across the world, we have 55 million people with dementia. By 2050, we are going to have 139 million across the globe. That's a lot of people. So, this is a growing problem. We need to address it. Khan's work with robots is her way of rethinking how
4: we care for the elderly at a time when the population is aging and nursing homes struggle to find workers. Khan brought a couple of her robots to the Aspen Ideas stage in June, and she gave the audience a preview of what the robots can do for people struggling with symptoms of dementia, like memory loss. The robots can lead patients in something called reminiscence therapy.
6: So I'm going to do some demos over here. You have
5: started reminiscence therapy for the resident. My tablet screen displays a bunch of your memories. Just say the name of any one of those and we will visit that.
6: Graduation.
5: You were such a great student. Remember the day of your graduation? It was such a memorable day. Your parents must be so proud of you.
4: Using robots in nursing homes is pretty new territory. To make her robots successful, Khan designed what she calls an intelligent, dementia-friendly living space. In that space, the people the robots are helping don't need to know how to use technology. Khan's robots have sensors that allow them to react to
6: what people are saying, doing, and even feeling. So when my robots react to something, they are actually reacting to data that they are gathering from these spatial sensors. They learn from the behavior of the person, what the person does during the day, and then make recommendations as the day goes by. I'll give you an example, like we have sensors in the chair. So from the sensors that are in the chair, we can figure out the mood of the person. We can read the emotion using the robot, and we can actually gauge how they are doing emotionally, physiologically at that moment.
4: Before they could actually use these robots in nursing homes, Khan and her team had to make sure that residents would feel comfortable having them around. And that's kind of tricky. A big part of that is how the robots look. Take Pepper, for example. Pepper is about four feet tall and is sleek and shiny white with big, cartoonish eyes. Pepper wasn't designed to look like a person. Pepper was designed to look like a fun, friendly, and kind of futuristic robot. Khan says
6: if the robots didn't look that way, people might not accept them. The robots should not be very humanoid, because if they're looking very human-like, they find it creepy. The more humanoid the robot looks, the more they are afraid. The other thing is when it's more human-like, the expectations rise. You know, so if it looks really human-like and doesn't act like a human, then people would reject it. I have a couple of students actually looking into robot acceptance. How accepting are they of robots? There is an audience that, you know, is very resistive. When the robot approaches them and tells them, you know, it's time to take your medication, immediately, you can see their posture changing. It's like, you are a machine. You're not going to tell me what to do. But the rest of the people were super excited about the robot. They were like, can I take one home right now?
4: Khan's team has worked with older adults to see what they want the robots to do.
6: And they had a specific request. One of the requests that I got from the elderly what they wanted the robots to do was tell dirty jokes. So actually, we programmed them to tell dirty jokes. So, which one of you
5: requested the dirty jokes? I can't believe you've gotten to this age without hearing one. I guess you were pretty sheltered. If you really want to hear dirty jokes, you should hang out with the nursing staff.
4: We won't share one of the dirty jokes, but Pepper does have some more appropriate humor.
5: I went into Starbucks the other day and one of the baristas asked me if I wanted any coffee. Can you believe that? Me? I said, no, I don't need coffee. I'm already completely wired.
4: Khan says robots could also help people in nursing homes live fuller lives by nudging them to do things they used to love.
6: So, for example, let's say, you know, there is Resident X, and Resident X used to love to play chess. And now, you know, living in the nursing home doesn't get an opportunity and doesn't have the desire to actually go out and play chess with somebody. And so the robot would approach and say, hey, you know, I was playing with him from room 204, and he actually is really good at chess, and he beat me in chess. Can you believe that? How are you at chess? I heard you used to play chess too. So that's like a gentle encouragement to do the things that they used to do. Different
4: robots specialize in different activities. Pepper has a sidekick a much smaller robot with little arms and legs that can move. That robot leads elderly-friendly exercises, like yoga.
5: Hello, everyone. We are going to be in a comfortable seated position. Now keep your hands relaxed on your knees and slowly inhale and exhale like this.
4: Khan says these robots aren't just there to help patients. They could also help provide human caregivers some much-needed relief. The robots can take on simple tasks, like reminding someone to take their medication and checking that they actually do it. And no matter how many times a robot has to do something, it will have infinite patience, even with the most repetitive parts of the job that family members might struggle with.
6: So for instance, if there is a person who needs to wear an oxygen mask all the time, instead of the daughter sitting there and reminding the person, you know, dad, please put on your mask, dad, please put on your mask. After like five times of reminders, the sixth time the tone is going to change. She's going to get a little frustrated. She's got other things she needs to be tending to that are more important to look after her dad. The robot can approach and say, hey, John, you took your mask off again. Could you please put it on? The tone will never change, speech will never change, it will still remain the same. So let the robots do those kind of mundane, repetitive tasks so that the caregivers, instead of spending two hours of grumpy time with the resident, they will spend maybe an hour of quality time. Taking the simplest
4: tasks off a healthcare worker's plate could make a big difference in an understaffed nursing home. Khan says these robots can't replace people, But she sees big potential for how these robots can help ease the workload for caregivers and allow people with dementia to live more independently.
6: They're not going to replace the actual human touch, you know. We want to improve the quality of life for the people affected with dementia and also the elderly people. So if their quality of life is here, we want it to at least stay here, not go down, if not improve. What I'm hoping is, over a period of time, the prices of the robots would drop and we would have every elderly person who would like to have a robot a robot with them. As a result, we will be able to keep our elderly at home for a longer period of time, try to maintain their quality of life, delay admission into assisted living and nursing homes and ultimately reduce the costs of care.
4: Dr. Arshia Khan spoke at Aspen Ideas Health in June. Khan is a computer science professor at the University of Minnesota Duluth. This year, a Minnesota company agreed to use Khan's robots at eight of its nursing homes. Robots began working at one of those nursing homes in July. They're telling jokes and helping residents recall their memories at a facility near the Twin
5: Cities. Have a great day ahead.
4: Goodbye. You can listen to Khan's full Aspen Ideas session and see her give a demonstration with her robots at aspenideas.org.
0: CPR Audio Innovations producer Rebecca Romberg. Thanks as well to our colleague Emily Williams. You can hear more speakers like Professor Arshia Khan in the Aspen Ideas to Go podcast. Find it wherever you listen. We'll also put a link at CPR.org slash Colorado Matters. Be right back. Inflation, abortion, the future of the state, the nation. Colorado voters have a lot to decide in the upcoming election. Well, as a,
1: as actually, a I am independent because I don't really like either party. I think the Democrats act weak. I think the Republicans act like bullies. I like the middle ground and I'd like to see some more middle ground.
0: Parse the problems, the people, and the possibilities of the coming elections with CPR News politics podcast, Purplish, anywhere you get your podcasts. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. We document the stories of Holocaust survivors in Colorado before those stories are lost. Years ago, I met Eric Kahn, who was saved by a French family. They hid him from the Nazis in their basement. When he was four, he'd been separated from his parents, who were sent to Auschwitz. Well, Eric Kahn passed away this month at age 84, so today we'll listen back to our 2017 conversation. Welcome to the program.
2: Thank you, Ryan, for having me this morning and also to Colorado Public Radio.
0: You were born in Mannheim in southwestern Germany. You were about two and a half when you and your family were forced into a refugee camp in France in 1940. Your sister was even younger. She was only months old. I understand you don't have any memories of your hometown, nor of that camp. What is your first memory of the war?
2: My first memory is of being in the basement of my French Christian rescue family, who took me in at great risks and saved my life.
0: What images stand out from that time in the basement?
2: I had a garden level window I could look out of and I was able to see the Nazis' boots marching up and down outside and very scary for me.
0: They would come by the house?
2: They would walk by. Fortunately, they never uh, attempted to come into the house, to search the house, because if they had, I certainly would not be alive today to talk about it.
0: But you were just four at this time, so I'm thinking you didn't have necessarily a profound understanding of the the global forces at play. Did you fully understand why you were in the basement?
2: I was pretty confused, although my French Christian rescue family had spoken to me about being as quiet and still most of the time and not to attract the attention of anyone outside.
0: What was your relationship with the family? How often would you see them? And did you have regular communication?
2: I looked forward to seeing them at mealtime most of the time. And they spent as much time as they could in that basement with me. And I felt very loving and taken care of.
0: They were a part of the resistance in France, um, did they have kids?
2: As a matter of fact, that's another part of what I considered to be a miracle. They had two children of their own who were a little bit older than I was. and they had to make sure that their children did not talk about the little boy downstairs with their friends. because if they had, word would have gotten out. The Nazis would have searched the house. I would have been discovered. And not just me, but the whole family would have been taken away and most likely have wound up in a concentration camp.
0: How often did you get to go outside and just feel the air on your skin?
2: I didn't get to go outside very often, mostly at night, when the Nazis had bedded down for the night. My family did take me out, and I was able to be outside and and enjoy the fresh air.
0: So it was members of the French resistance who had smuggled you and your sister out of that camp in France and to these homes. Uh, Nazi troops raided the camp and sent everyone, including your parents, to Auschwitz. Your mother went immediately to the gas chamber. I can't imagine how difficult a decision it was for your parents to part with their children. You are a parent. So, looking back at that, what do you think of their choice?
2: Well, let me say to you that I have a hard time really comprehending uh, how they came to that decision. But if they had not done that, and it certainly was a very difficult and wrenching decision to have to make for any parent, but they made that decision. And if they had not done that, I would have been on that same train that they were on, on September the 16th, 1942, which took them to Auschwitz. And I, as a four-and-a-half-year-old child, my sisters, a two-and-a-half-year-old, would not have survived.
0: You and your sister were separated after being smuggled out of the French camp, and you later learned that she was about 10 miles from you. Um, you lived in that French family's basement for almost two years, is that right, Eric?
2: That's correct. and. The interesting thing is that, as you say, she was less than 10 miles away from me. I had no idea, nor did my French family have any idea that she was there. We were reunited in 1944 in an orphanage outside of Paris. And that happened because Like the Nazis, who unfortunately kept very accurate and very detailed records, the French resistance also kept very accurate and detailed records, which meant that my French Christian rescue family, when the Nazis no longer occupied that part of France, had to give me up.
0: And thus, the reunification with your sister was not by accident. That was a function of of careful record-keeping. But would you have recognized your sister those years later?
2: As a matter of fact, I did not. I happened to be in the infirmary of that orphanage where we were reunited. They brought my sister in and introduced us together as sister and brother. How was that? It felt very strange because I had no idea or remember that I had a sister.
0: Your mother was murdered at Auschwitz, but your father survived, and Soviet forces liberated that death camp in January 1945. You and your sister reunited with him in Germany. How did that time in Auschwitz change your father and affect his ability to care for two children in in what I have to imagine was just a wake of trauma and grief?
2: He had survived Auschwitz, and physically he was okay. And he never, ever talked about what he had to do to survive. He told us a mother had died, he would not talk about her. And he really had suffered tremendously, traumatically. We lived with him for about four years. He chose to begin early on to decide to send us to America, to a better life. And I feel that he did that because he really wasn't sure how to take good care of us even though he wanted to. And he also wanted to go on with his life because I also feel that my sister and I reminded him daily of our mother. Oh, my goodness, yeah. And that had to be very, very difficult for him.
0: Was he affectionate?
2: He tried to be. And... He took very good care of us. He did have a German housekeeper who assisted him in taking care of us. At the time I was eight, my sister was six.
0: Um, Do you remember your mother at all? Or is it that you remember her through the stories you were told about her?
2: I really have no memory of my mother. Although I would like to say that the kind of person that I feel I've become... I attribute to her. She was, as I have learned, a very loving parent. And I just give a lot of credit to her, even though I only had four and a half years with her, for who the person I've become.
0: I guess what I'm hearing and what you're saying there is that your, your biology is her. Your, your body is part her. Your mind is part her. And in, Absolutely. And in that way, you have a bond.
2: Yes, yeah. very definitely.
0: Um, your father wasn't sure that he could take good care of you after what he'd experienced in the war and the fact that you two reminded him so much of his late wife. And so you and your sister came to the U.S. in 1950 without your father. This was under the Displaced Persons Act. Congress passed it to allow people displaced by the Nazis to come to the U.S. And you lived with your grandparents in Pueblo. You were about 12 lived there for several years, but it became difficult for them to care for you both, uh, you and your sister. So you eventually ended up back in an orphanage. Is that right?
2: That's correct. Let me say, if I may, Ryan, that my grandparents and my mother's five brothers and sisters, my aunts and uncles, had managed to get out of Germany in 1939. They promised our family they would do all they could to get us out, which, of course, did not happen. So we arrived in Pueblo, Colorado, where my grandparents lived, in the spring of 1950. We lived with them for three years. They got too old to take care of us. They retired to New York. They sent my sister and I to Denver. My sister lived in two foster homes that did not work out for her. I lived in one foster home that did not work out for me. So we both wound up in an orphanage in West Denver where we each lived until we graduated high school.
0: I think so often of how orphanages are depicted in movies, and and I think that they sound like a terrible place. Was that true of the orphanage in Denver?
2: As a matter of fact, definitely not. Let me say that in terms of the orphanage in Denver, for the first time in my life, I felt really happy and content. The administrator of that orphanage, Jack Gerstensen, made it a point to give me the opportunities to become independent. He allowed me to work evenings at a supermarket. He eventually allowed me to get a driver's license and buy my own car. And he encouraged me to go to college.
0: You eventually uh, went on to graduate from CU Boulder, got married, worked as a certified public accountant. So it sounds like he paved the way for all of that. But it's so interesting to be in an orphanage and not actually be an orphan. You, you had a living father at that time. Uh, did you feel resentment towards him?
2: You know, when my sister and I first came to America, I was very angry and very upset because, once again, we were being sent away, and this time I felt that that should not have happened. So as a 12-year-old, I was very angry with my dad. As it turns out, of course, I've had a very good life, and I'm glad that he made the choice to send us to America. Did you ever see him again? As a matter of fact, I did. When we first came to America, my sister and I corresponded by mail with my dad. He got remarried. We did lose contact with him. I happened to be back in Germany for the first time in 1970. I was able to look him up. I spent one evening with him. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: He then died of natural causes in 1975.
0: What What was that reunion like for you?
2: It was not what I hoped it would be. Um, We talked about the weather, we talked about the stock market. Uh, It was very non-personal. And uh, I felt like I would never really connect with him as a son and father should.
0: Did the anger you felt coming to the United States dissipate? Did you have more compassion for his decision?
2: Not until later years. Okay. As I grew up and became an adult, most definitely, yes.
0: You were going to mention your sister, and I interrupted you.
2: My sister uh, never saw him again from the day we came to America.
0: Hmm. Uh, your sister has, has passed on, is that correct?
2: Unfortunately, she has.
0: She was able to reconnect with the family that sheltered her. In their basement in France. But you were not able to track down yours, despite Mm -hmm. all of the good record-keeping that you said the resistance had?
2: Uh, Over the years, I have searched and researched to try and find my French Christian rescue family. In 1983, with the help of the French consulate, we found a woman by the name of Jacqueline Pondy, who had sheltered my sister during the war. She was living in Macedonia at the time, and the wonderful, exciting thing that happened was that my sister and she were reunited in Paris in 1983. I've never found my rescue family, and that's a real loss in my life.
0: It's something that you would still hope to do. Are there any clues? Is there a a piece of paperwork that would unlock this for you?
2: Not that I'm aware of.
0: You've scoured, in other words. Yes. Yes. You say that you have really no memory of your mother who died at Auschwitz. Do you have visual memory of the family that protected you? Do you you remember faces? or Not really. Uh
2: Over all this time, that has also faded.
0: You did not talk to your own children about your experience in the war and uh, essentially being rescued from the, the Nazis, saved... By this family. You didn't talk about that until much later in their lives. Is that right?
2: As a matter of fact, my older son and my daughter, I did not divulge or share my experiences with them until they were teenagers. And actually, it took many years for me to start talking about w- what I've gone through. Uh, unlike Elie Wiesel, who who vowed for 10 years that he would not talk about his experience as a survivor in Auschwitz. Now, since then, beginning in 1991, for the last 26 years, I have had a mission, one of the missions in my life has been to speak to well over 100,000 students to help educate them about what discrimination, bigotry, and hatred can lead to, as well as to remind adults like myself of what that can lead to.
0: Why do you think you stayed silent for so long? The reason
2: that I did is because when I first came to America as a 12-year-old, I wanted to be like other children. I wanted to be American. So even in high school, when I've developed some very close friends who I'm in contact with even today, I did not share that with them at all until much, much later.
0: Have you been to Auschwitz where your mother died?
2: As a matter of fact, I have. My wife and I, several years ago, made a journey that I had wanted to make for a long time to retrace my steps and to retrace my parents' steps. So I went back to Mannheim, where I had contacted the mayor and, and a historian who showed us around.
0: This is where your family originally came from?
2: Yes. I went back to Camp Gurs, is camp a... in southern France. Right, right. I went back to the orphanage outside of Paris and spent some time there. And we wound up in Auschwitz for me to say a final
0: goodbye to my mother. Were you able to find out what happened to her exactly there?
2: You know, again, one of the things that the Nazis did is to keep very accurate and detailed records. So there is documentation that she was sent to the gas chamber and died.
0: And that was pretty quickly after arriving? Yes. Mm -hmm. So that trip was really a retracing Of your unsettled childhood. Absolutely. Of all the different places you were shipped to and from. Yes. And that your parents were shipped to and from. Yes. Thank you for sharing your story with us. We appreciate it.
2: Thank you, Ryan, for having me.
0: Holocaust survivor Eric Kahn of Denver recorded in 2017. He died September 9th at age 84. And that is Colorado Matters for today grateful for your time. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC.